0: Your film is now ready to be shown.
1: Good morning, I'm Justin Hendricks, editor of Tech Policy Press, a nonprofit media and community venture intended to provoke new ideas, debate, and discussion at the intersection of technology and democracy. Is technology ultimately neutral? Are the biases we discover in the systems we interact with today just bugs or defects that we can trust will be addressed in version 2.0 or 3.0 of the system? Or is there something inherently wrong with the tech industry's approach to developing algorithms and software? In today's podcast, we speak to the author of a new book that takes on this question, concluding that the biases we encounter in technology are more than mere glitches.
0: My name is Meredith Broussard. I am a data journalism professor at NYU. I am the research director at the NYU Alliance for Public Interest Technology. And I am the author of a new book called More Than a Glitch, Confronting Race, Gender, and Ability Bias in Tech.
1: Meredith, I'm excited to talk to you about this book. I know it's been uh, long in the works. The last time I ran into you in person, I was in Washington Square Park just by chance, and you had just turned in the manuscript. I think I remember that the sun was out that day. It was probably about a year ago. How's it going? How's the launch going?
0: It has been fantastic. I feel really fortunate that I get to talk to fun people like you. And so far, I've had two sold-out events in New York City, and I have a bunch of other events coming up around the country. So it's very gratifying to be read, obviously. I mean, that's why we write. But also, I've just been lucky to have these really amazing conversations with people around the intersection of race and technology, gender and technology, disability and technology.
1: So you've been a guest on this podcast before, so my listeners have no excuse not to know who you are, but just for anybody that's new, uh, can you tell folks just a little bit about your area of research and what you get up to at NYU?
0: So I teach data journalism. Data journalism is the practice of finding stories in numbers and using numbers to tell stories. I got into this because I started my career as a computer scientist. I quit to become a journalist, and then I came back to computer science through data journalism. In addition to writing code in order to investigate social phenomena, I also do a lot of public communication around the reality of AI. I am deeply involved in the global conversation around AI ethics, uh, responsible data science, and with this new book, extending the AI ethics conversation and kind of elevating some of the really interesting journalism and scholarship that's been done at the intersection of the social and the technical.
1: So let's get into this book and let's start with cookies. Uh, You say the sweet and crunchy kind. That's where you start the book out. Why did you start with cookies?
0: Well, the cookie to me is a really useful metaphor. When I think about fairness in the world or in computing, I do think about a cookie because uh, when I was little and there would be one cookie left in the cookie jar, my little brother and I would fight over who got the last cookie. And If you were a computer trying to solve this conflict, maybe you were trying to solve one of those word problems you do in elementary school, right? The computer would say, well, the solution is that each child gets half of the cookie, gets 50%. And that is absolutely true. That is a mathematically fair solution. But the way it works in the real world is not like that, because in the real world, when you break a cookie in half, there's a big half and a little half. And then my brother and I would fight over who got which half. And so, If I wanted the big half of the cookie, I would say to my brother, all right, you let me have the big half of the cookie now, and I will let you pick the TV show that we watch after dinner. And my brother would think for a second, and he would say, yeah, that sounds fair. And it was. It was a socially fair decision. So I think that we need to keep in mind what kind of fairness we are trying to solve for in a particular situation. And we need to keep in mind that computers can only calculate mathematical fairness, which is why we run into so many problems when we start trying to use computers to solve social problems.
1: You start the book with a look at the math uh, and kind of setting a baseline. Can you kind of just give the listener the high level on that? What, what's most important that you think even perhaps someone that's not mathematically minded, uh, has to have in mind when they're thinking about this issue?
0: I think it's really important to keep in mind that we have really deep-seated Hollywood ideas about what AI can do. And so we need to be realistic about that, recognize that these are imaginary ideas, and we need to be a little more practical about AI's abilities and its limitations. So really when we're using AI, we're just doing math. We're doing very beautiful, complicated math, but it's still just math. And so when you start saying, oh yeah, we're going to, to use math to solve a social problem, you realize, oh wait, maybe that's not exactly, exactly the thing I want to do, or you know, it becomes easier to kind of tease out the difference between equity and equality. So I would like us to uh, to ground the conversation around AI in reality, as opposed to getting confused with Hollywood definitions. But then also I'm really interested in the global conversation about dimensions of fairness and how do we measure fairness and Account for fairness inside computational systems. Uh, that is an exploding body of research. And the way that journalism intersects that is in something called algorithmic accountability reporting.
1: So, the book does have uh, some charts and graphs and some math in it for folks that want to kind of go deep into some of your thinking about the dimensionality of these questions. Uh, they can do that. You carry on in multiple chapters talking about some topics that we've discussed in the past on this podcast and in other contexts, ways in which we see bias in tools like facial recognition, bias in predictive policing, other aspects of the justice system. You focus in on uh, education and contexts context where, uh, of course, we confront bias there. I want to focus in on a couple of later chapters on ability and technology. How would you say that chapter demonstrates your thinking?
0: The section of the book that deals with uh, the intersection of disability and technology was the section that I felt like I had to learn the most about in order to write it. I had to I had to stretch myself. I mean, as a writer, you're always trying to be empathetic to put yourself in somebody else's shoes. But because I hadn't written before about, uh, I hadn't written extensively about topics and disability. I got a sense of just how broad the topic is. So I'm really grateful to the thinkers, the advocates, uh, the everyday folks who uh, shared their wisdom with me. As I was writing this chapter, I realized that when you are designing for disability, uh, there's no one-size-fits-all strategy. This is, uh, this is something that you'll hear over and over and over again. And it's absolutely true. And this is in contrast to the kind of lean startup narrative that is very popular inside technology, right? So the lean startup narrative goes, all right, identify a pain point, narrow down that pain point as specifically as possible, write code against it, and then scale it up right? And then make bajillions of dollars. When it comes to disability, technology has made the world more accessible. It is an absolutely wonderful innovation. And I completely embrace all of the technological innovations that have helped people get greater access. And yet those technological innovations are often not enough, right? So we have done a lot and we also need to do more. So I tell the story of Richard Dan, who was working at an Apple store in Maryland and got fantastic reviews from customers. Uh, And because he was fluent in ASL, American Sign Language, folks would come from hours away in order to come to this one Apple store where he worked because uh, he could communicate with them in ASL. And because Richard is deaf, he would attend these team meetings where somebody would stand at the front of the room and address the crowd. And because he's deaf, he couldn't hear the person at the front of the room. And so he asked for accommodation. And the manager, as an accommodation, offered to have one of his co-workers type notes about what was happening at the meeting. And Richard said, okay. And they tried it for a little while and it wasn't enough because the coworker worker uh, needed to also participate in the meeting. And it's very difficult to participate in a meeting and also be a scribe at the same time. So it wasn't working. Richard was missing material. And then the manager started giving him a hard time. And Richard said, listen, this is not working. Like I need a different accommodation. I think an in-person interpreter would be better uh, because you also can't use text-to-speech technology in that kind of situation because like, let's say that you are using an iPad with a text-to-speech program running on it, or sorry, speech-to-text. The iPad doesn't necessarily pick up the person at the front of the room who's speaking, it just picks up the ambient sound, right? So the technology does not do the same thing that an ear would in terms of differentiating between the importance of different sounds happening in a room. And so Richard asked for a human interpreter and the manager said, no, uh, we're not going to pay for a human interpreter. We think the technology is good enough. And it was an illustration to me of the way that people think that technology is going to be a sufficient accommodation. And people are often really eager to just like throw technology at a situation and and just be done with it. But really what we should think about is using the right tool for the task. Sometimes you do need a human interpreter to stand in a noisy room and interpret. Right. And then other times, yes, it's totally fine to have a speech to text program. You know, it's about Situation, it's about the context, it's about the right tool for the task.
1: I guess this gets to kind of the core idea of, of the book. You know, this idea uh, that you, you state, you know, many people confronted with ableism, race, or general bias in tech tend to consider it a glitch. A glitch is something temporary, a mysterious blip that may or may not be repeated. So even in this story, I can hear a little bit of that this idea that, you know, perhaps this is uh, something we can smooth over or get past. Uh, Mm -hmm. a problem that we'll we'll just, you know, wish away.
0: Right. And I think that the time for treating these kinds of problems as glitches has passed. So when technology exacerbates inequality, it's not just a glitch. It's an indication that something systemic is going on, that we need to re-examine What's going on in technology? We need to re-examine what's going on in society, and we need to question the idea that we can code our way out of the situation.
1: This notion of universal design, I do want to just kind of you know focus in on it a little bit because it is at the you know heart of the way that tech firms operate. I've been thinking about this a little bit with open AI, chat, large language models. You know it's possible that these companies putting out these products, could have said, look, uh, we can only do this in particular use cases where we know it will be safe, where we've built correct guardrails, uh, et cetera. But no, uh, what we want to do is, is create a general tool, a generalized uh, API that could be used for any number of millions of purposes. The goal is always immediate scale.
0: Right. Uh, people want to write it once and run it anywhere. One way that I think about this is... I think about hard problems and easy problems in technology. And we are at a really interesting point now where all of the problems that are easy to solve with technology have actually been solved, right? So like word processing, for example, that's a really easy problem to solve. It's been really thoroughly solved. Everybody uses word processing. We have it in all the different languages, but now we're left with, very, very difficult technological and social problems. And so there aren't easy solutions. And even inside word processing, there are social issues. One of the things that I discovered when I was writing the chapter about gender is uh, I was writing it in Microsoft Word and I was interviewing someone who uses uh, Z Zim pronouns. And Z and Zim are not recognized as words by the Microsoft Word dictionary, right? We get a little red squiggle underneath. So I realized that was a very human decision that was encoded in the dictionary that was chosen by Microsoft to be embedded in the word processing program, right? So it's everywhere, these human decisions uh, and these cultural context decisions, and we should discuss them and challenge them sometimes.
1: One group that you point to who you say are doing a good job of updating their mental models, technological frameworks uh, to correspond to social scientific knowledge is doctors. Um, why did you think that was important to, to point out? What, what is it about the way that doctors operate and bring on new information, including, I suppose, information about fringe cases or, or not the normal cases that may be useful?
0: Well, I have spent an awful lot of time with doctors, nurses, medical staff, medical professionals over the past couple of years because I had cancer. And uh, I'm fine now. I am really, really grateful uh, to everybody who just cared for me so thoughtfully and was involved in uh, in my case. And as I was reflecting on my cancer experience, I started reflecting on, What people had to do in order to diagnose me, and I also happened to be poking around in my electronic medical record, as one does when one is a data journalist, and I saw this note on my file that said this scan was read by an AI. I thought, oh, that's weird. Why was an AI reading my mammograms, and what did it find, and which AI was it? I had a lot of questions. I so. What I ended up doing eventually was setting up an experiment where I took my own mammograms, ran them through an open source AI uh, in order to write about the state of the art in AI-based cancer detection. And in order to do this, I had to learn a lot about how do doctors diagnose cancer? What are the diagnostic criteria? What is the process? How are people trained? And I learned as part of that, how, how doctors update their knowledge. And I don't know if listeners know this, but your doctors have to renew their their certifications pretty often, right? Like they don't just get a medical license and then go off into the world. Like they have to regularly prove that they are up to date on the newest thinking. So I don't have to do that as a journalist. I don't have to do that as a data scientist. Like there are no there are no regular board exams for journalists or data scientists, but there are for doctors. Uh, there are for lawyers have the same, uh, the same kind of regular, uh, regular update method. So doctors work really hard to update their base of knowledge, and they use this enormous suite of high-tech tools. And I was just really impressed with, uh, with what I learned along the way.
1: This, of course, uh, you know, is in a context where you're receiving good care. Um, I assume in some c- cases, people aren't receiving quite such uh, good attention.
0: Yes. And that is a problem. Uh, it is a problem that people often say will be dealt with by using more technology. So I wanted to get into this myth about the future of cancer diagnosis. Because if you read the popular press, you might get the impression that AI-based cancer diagnosis is right around the corner. Uh, people will say things like, "Oh yeah, radiologists like we're not going to have any more of them in a couple of years." Uh, Jeff Hinton, one of the uh, one of the fathers of deep learning, like has has said this and has been really dismissive of radiologists. I. I don't know. I I was kind of upset by that because I'm so grateful to all of the radiologists who have been involved in my care. And when you go in for a scan and they say, Oh yeah, this is an area of concern, like you want to talk to a radiologist that minute. And I was really grateful that I could talk to the radiologists right that minute. So this is a myth that that AI is about to replace doctors in diagnosing cancer. It's also a myth that we're going to have a kind of dock in a box that is going to be able to be deployed in poor countries, in rural areas where people are, you know, where it's more difficult for people to access medical care. Um, Because you hear this a lot, you hear, oh yeah, we're going to use AI and that we're going to have a portable mammogram machine and people in rural areas are going to have a much easier time. But when you really look at all the steps involved in doing something like that, it's not really practical. You know, so can we someday have AI-based cancer diagnosis? Sure. Maybe, You know, probably. It's possible. Uh, maybe not. I don't know. But it's definitely not right around the corner. Uh, Another interesting thing that I discovered that uh, that people don't often talk about is the way that AI-based cancer diagnosis works. So when you have an AI that has to predict, say, whether there's malignant area on a scan, you have to decide how wrong you're willing for it to be and what kind of wrong you're willing to accept. Right. so you have to decide whether you want more false positives or false negatives. So with a false negative that would be the computer saying nope, no cancer when the person actually has cancer and a false positive would be the computer saying yeah, I think uh, I think there's probably cancer when there isn't actually cancer right So false positives are considered better because the stakes are higher for false negatives than for false positives. And with a false positive, you just send somebody into the diagnostic pipeline and, you know, then you discover that they're fine and, you know, that's considered better. But from a patient perspective, you don't really want either of those. I do not want extra, you know, a two weeks extra of worrying about having cancer. And I do not want the computer saying, oh yeah, you definitely don't have cancer when I have cancer, right? So there there isn't really a good option. And that's something that I think people haven't wrestled with enough.
1: So when I abstract that and think about all of the applications of AI, and I think about the promises of abundance that people like Sam Altman are making, you know, I think kind of inherent in that is this idea that even if there is a sort of jankiness to these systems at first, or even if there is uh, an imprecision in their outputs, that that's just a sort of temporary phenomenon. We'll get past it. Uh, and yeah, eventually, you know, I'll have a chatbot that I'm interacting with over a 3G connection in some rural part of a developing world country, and have better healthcare as a result. That that really is the kind of narrative.
0: Yeah, it really is, and it's it's marketing.
1: Fair enough. Um, I want to talk a little bit about the latter half of the book. You talk about the potential for a reboot. You are optimistic about the fact that more people are studying these issues. You even put some hope in the legislative process. We can talk about uh, whether that is uh, you know, a good place to put your, your hope in this country in particular. You point to civil society groups, uh, Stop LAPD Spying, the Surveillance Technology Oversight Project, the IDB Wells Just Data Lab, NYU's Brennan Center, Immigrant Defense Project, Brooklyn College's Policing and Social Justice Project, just many that are focused on issues of tech and bias and questions around equity. You talk about whistleblowers and their impact, Francis Hogan, Sophie Zhang, Yael Eisenstadt. uh, I might add uh, Daniel Motong to that list. You know, so many people that are kind of working on these things. I want to get a sense from you. Do you you feel it's enough given the kind of scale and the degree of investment that we're seeing uh, from Silicon Valley at the moment? Do you think that that grassroots civil society resistance essentially is enough.
0: The book is not entirely a bummer. Like I do talk about a lot of AI related disasters. I do talk about a lot of AI harms, but ultimately I am indeed optimistic. I think that there's some incredible resistance happening. And one of the things that I hope that readers will take away from it is uh, I hope that readers will find some resources to inspire them and also will learn about some of the amazing people who are doing uh, are doing work that that adds nuance to the narratives around big tech. I'm not a person who says, "Oh, there's this one answer." I mean, yes, I would like it if, you know, if everybody listened to me, but, you know, I'm pretty sure like mine is not the only perspective out there in the world. And so I'm very keenly aware that there's not a single solution that can be articulated in the space of a tweet that is going to make the world better. I mean, it took us decades to get into the mess that we're in now with technology and society. It's definitely a pre existing mess. Like it's always been kind of a mess being human. So it's going to take us a while to get out of it. It's going to take collective effort. What does that collective effort look like? Well, there's an individual effort. There is Policy level effort, and there is you know work we're going to have to do on ourselves. there's work we're going to have to do organizationally. There's a lot, right? So individually, uh, I think that people can uh, can work on computational literacy and computational empowerment and can understand what's real and what's imaginary about AI. Uh, the kind of more organizational level, I'm really excited about the evolving field of public interest technology, which I think you've talked about on the show quite a bit. It's technology in the public interest. One of the examples that I often use, public interest technology, is people who are strengthening government websites so that when there's a pandemic and millions of people apply for unemployment benefits at the same time, the website doesn't go down. Right, so we need to make our websites uh, strong and resilient. We need to update them the same way that we you know, do routine maintenance and updating on our roads and bridges. On the policy level, uh, I'm really excited about a number of moves in the EU and in the US. Uh, one thing I really like is the blueprint for an AI bill of rights, which. Uh, in part, says that if an algorithm makes a decision that goes against you, uh, that is unfair, or unjust, you would have the right to human intervention. And you would have the right to talk to a human very quickly uh, who is empowered to change the algorithm's decision. And this is really radical, right? Because right now, people tend to believe the decisions that computers make. Like if a computer turns you down for the mor- for a mortgage... You might think, oh, well, you know, I guess I, I don't deserve a mortgage. I haven't, you know, my credit score is not high enough or, you know, I don't have enough whatever. Like you tend to blame yourself, but you don't tend to think, oh yeah, the mortgage approval algorithm, that is probably racist. And honestly, it probably is because it's fed with data about uh who has gotten mortgages in the past, which in the US is a very long history of housing discrimination, of financial discrimination. So but when you call customer service and you tell them the algorithm is wrong, they don't really believe you, right? So we need to change that.
1: One of the things I found myself thinking about uh, when I was looking at your book is something that I, I think about a lot these days. In fact, I came across in an essay uh, this morning by uh, Chris Gilliard, someone you interviewed for the book. He's focusing in this essay on the idea of the sort of imagination of the future, the degree to which any future can be as salient as the one that Silicon Valley seems to want to impose on the world. Um, and he he quoted Ruha Benjamin, you know, who you've mentioned here and who is someone else that you quote from in the book. Uh, and she said, quote, most people are forced to live inside someone else's imagination, misery for some, monopoly for others. I'm kind of wondering Having done this book, having thought through these things, having landed in the place you are, I've thought them through very deeply, and yet still holding on to that optimism. Do you think we can arrive at a future that's more salient than the one that's presently on offer from the big tech firms uh, or convert enough of the folks in big tech to an alternative? Um, is that part of it that we have to kind of get a better technological imagination or even perhaps a better imagination of what society we want?
0: I'm really glad that you brought up Ruha Benjamin. Uh, that, is a, that is a lovely line. And uh, Dr. Benjamin has been uh, really inspirational for me in helping me think through these issues. Uh, Chris Gilliard is also doing just incredible work on you know, helping people understand uh, the dangers of surveillance technology, especially inside education. I have never been particularly invested in a sci-fi future. Whenever you hear some uh, startup, you know startup tech CEO interviewed it kind of goes like this, like, oh, when I was a kid, I interacted with X science fiction property and it made me think differently about the possibilities for the world. And then I grew up and I learned to code and I learned to build things. And then I decided to try and make that science fiction idea reality. And look, now I have this widget and this widget is going to change the world. That is literally exactly the way it sounds every single time. Like I heard this exact interview on the radio like two days ago. It's, I mean, yeah, we tell ourselves stories the same way, but like I'm a little tired of that narrative. Like it's a little old and it's also not that science fiction enabled future is not a future that I co-sign on. So we can have multiple visions of the future. I I'm not interested in having somebody else's vision of the future imposed on me, but I'm also aware that like my vision of the future is not one that should be imposed on everybody else. Like There are multiple ways to exist in the world and we don't need to, everybody in the world subscribe to the same vision of the future, right? So when you're building technology though, and you are creating something like a social network that has you know, that has values built into it because every social network is a socio-technical system. It has values built into it. Kathy O'Neill has said, algorithms are opinions embedded in code. When you build something like this, you are imposing your own values on the system. You're imposing your own vision of the future onto the system. And I think we need more diversity
1: you point to indigenous futurism, Afrofuturism, African futurism, Desi futurism, Arab futurism, Asian futurism, South Asian futurism, Chicana futurism. Uh, and the There's degree a to lot which- of kinds <laughs> of
0: futurism out there.
1: Absolutely. And I wonder if uh, perhaps we can figure out a way to make those you know, more salient perhaps than, than the dreams of a handful of folks uh, in Menlo Park or, or wherever else on the West Coast. I am also struck by this other line that follows that, which is that you're starting to hear more stories of people triumphing over algorithmic wrongs or or tech wrongs. And I suppose that's a point of optimism.
0: I end the book with a story about somebody who... Oh. uh who pushes back against an algorithm, just algorithmic decision and and wins. So it's the story of Soojin Kim, who at the time was a college senior who was trying to take a test online and the test kept kicking her out and her scores were delayed, possibly because of the surveillance software uh, flagging her as cheating or flagging her as not being the person who had registered to take the test. Who knows what the problem was. But anyway, her scores were delayed. And if her scores had been delayed any longer, then it would have pushed her past the deadline for the various graduate programs that she was applying to. And she wouldn't have been considered for graduate school in that application cycle. And basically it was just going to like mess up the entire next, uh, next chapter of her life. So she was a student at Michigan and she had done work in understanding algorithmic bias. And she knew that the problem was likely with the computer system. The problem was likely not with her. And so she advocated for herself and she got her professors to intervene with the uh, with the test company, and magically, just before the deadline, the test company that had uh, had said for a very long time, "Oh yeah, there's uh, there's some kind of some kind of hold. We don't know what's going on." Oh, they managed to release her scores. Who knew? Once there was a little public pressure, right? So there shouldn't like there shouldn't have to be public pressure. Like you shouldn't have to you know, tweet at customer service in order to get an airline to issue a refund. Like you shouldn't have to have you know your professors get in touch with the test company and explain to them that uh their technology is broken. Like you shouldn't have to do that. But I am a little bit optimistic that people like Sujin Kim are realizing that they can push back, uh that they can All attention to when an algorithm is making an inappropriate decision and that they can get humans involved to right algorithmic wrongs.
1: Well, a good place to end on a story of uh, one individual. Hopefully there'll be many, many more that will rise to prominence in in the coming years. More Than a Glitch, Meredith Boussard, thank you so much for speaking to me.
0: Thanks so much, Justin. Great being here.
1: That's it for this episode. I hope you'll send your feedback. You can write to me at justin at techpolicy.press or find us on Twitter at techpolicypress. Thanks to my guest. Thanks to my co-founder, Brian Jones. And thank you for listening. Tech Policy
0: Press.